Lord, we pray this morning that that would be uh, true, that we would hide ourselves in you and know you and delight all the more in you and in your presence. Lord, we pray that now as we open your word, you would show yourself mighty, teach us who you are, for we love you, Lord. Amen. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're in Luke chapter 23. We're going to be going through verses 44 all the way through the end of the chapter. And just as you turn there, we're in the middle of the crucifixion. This is the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus that we're in. This is a very... uh, It almost feels like you should just read this and then let it sit and say nothing. Because that's what happens in this passage is everybody shuts down. And for three days, there's this silence that that occurs. And there's a few things we need to remind ourselves of. First, God is never silent. He never stops. Even in the three days, we know that Jesus is proclaiming victory over the darkness. He is tearing strongholds down according to First Peter, he is dis- demolishing entities and rulers who are above him. He is destroying death at its very core in these three days. He is not silent. So as we read this, remember that the God is not silent here. Also, as we read, remember that uh, all of these things we see in this text point us to him and point us to who he is in some way, shape or form. So with those two things in mind, let's remember and read Luke chapter 23, verse 44 through 56. And then let's dive in. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandments. 
May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, we have this incredible picture, and I just want you to ponder it for a minute. Jesus, the Lord of glory, is crucified on the cross, and in this moment, the most dramatic thing happens. Some sort of eclipse blocks out the sun. I don't know. It doesn't say eclipse. It could have just been miraculous. God decided to turn off the lights. But it goes dark for three hours. And we think it was an eclipse because it seems to be localized to Jerusalem. There's not a worldwide record of three hours of eclipse that happens, although there are some places on the earth where it says that this did happen. Some records that said there was an eclipse in the sky somewhere around when we think Jesus was crucified like that. There are some records that say that, and I'm sure that men like Lee Strobel and those types have done the computer work and gone back and charted the stars and seen, oh, this is when it happened. And that's all well and good. Don't get caught up in the date. But know this, this happened. Jesus is crucified and there's an eclipse. Not only is there an eclipse, but Matthew tells us there's an earthquake. That Jesus cries out, breathes his last, and then the earth literally trembles. Trembles in fear. In uncertainty. The very foundations of the earth that we walk, the ground that we walk on, suddenly is unstable. The light that we depend on is gone. The very sustaining power of life is gone. And so, and Matthew goes on to tell us, so backwards is everything that even the dead start getting up and walking around. And they see dead people coming out of tombs at Jesus' death. This is crazy. This is crazy what happens here. So just for a minute, imagine you went to see this spectacle. It's called a spectacle here. This spectacle where the Romans are putting on their power. The Jews are exercising their authority. And everyone is smashing this rabbi. A homeless rabbi. They're smashing him. They're killing him. They're spitting on him and mocking him. Whole crowds mock him. Mobs are around yelling at him. The only people who are really weeping are the daughters of Jerusalem who may have been a club of professional mourners and a few women who are allowed there who are ignored basically and then we know from the gospel of John one disciple who's probably dressed like a woman hiding in disguise that's it and he is there on the cross The lights go dark, the ground shakes, and all of earth is suddenly unstable. We can can see something here. Without Christ, life is unstable. The foundations of life are broken. Without Christ, your ability to walk in a stable place is gone. Without Christ, the light is gone. He's the light of the world in more ways than one. I would contend that everyone on this earth experiences common grace because you're not dead and in hell yet. It's common grace. 
Now, I know theologically that term's used for other things. Common grace is that you are still breathing. That we who are wicked and have spit on the Lord and rejected Him still get the privilege of breathing and living life. That those who have turned their backs on Him still have time to repent. And that's what Isaiah means when he says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Seek the Lord, He's still here. So Jesus first dies on the cross here in this passage that we're reading. And when he does, the lights go out. The earth trembles. Everything is gone. Look at what it says. While the sun's light failed. Three hours and the most stable source of energy in in existence fails. So one, Jesus is the sustainer of all life. He's the foundation of all life. Not just those who believe, but to the whole world. There is a common grace. And that common grace is that we get to breathe and live on this earth. But there is a particular grace for those that believe and trust in Christ. Because for us, even if the earth fails, even if the earth fails and the sun's light fades, we have the light of life in our hearts in Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed and rescued and the foundations of the earth can, can wash away before us. Even if they wash away before us, we know who he is and we know where we are and we stand firm because of that. Even when all the world falls apart, we have Christ And nothing can take that from us. Nothing can take that from us. No matter how bad our circumstances get, Jesus Christ is our rock and our salvation. We shall not be shaken. Psalm 62. We shall not be shaken. So, the whole earth trembles. The light fails. As the sustainer of all life dies. This is the first thing. We know we have a foundation in Him. Second thing we can, we can rest on is that if He's our foundation and if everything else can fall away, then we can rest in the truth that He is our foundation and everything else can fall away. We can rest in the truth that tomorrow is in His hands. Yesterday was in His hands. And today is in his hands. And guess what? He's the same. Hebrews chapter 13. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He doesn't change. He's the same. So we have this hope eternal in Christ Jesus that can never be taken away. And we see it illustrated here on the cross. That there will come a day when judgment lands on the earth. And the stability that everybody's given through common grace is gone. But for those that trust in Christ Jesus, it remains. And heaven meets earth, and the new heaven and new earth get consummated in Christ Jesus, and we get to live eternally with Him. It's beautiful and powerful and true. Verse 45, he goes on and he says the second thing here, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now we're told specifically in Mark's gospel that the curtain is torn from top to bottom in two. And, and there's an emphasis there that God's the one tearing the curtain. Now, this curtain was 
was remarkable. This curtain was the, uh, the image of the tabernacle curtain. I don't, if, you, if you've never studied the tabernacle curtain, that, it's the same curtain used in the temple. It divided the room in two. It divided the, holies of, the holy of holies from the holy place. So only priests could go into the holy place anyway, but then the holy of holies, only one person could enter one time a year on the day of atonement, and he would, be, he would have to go through this incredibly rigorous ritual property, and he'd walk in, and, and it was magnificent. There's all kinds of things to talk about, about that, and I could talk about it for hours. We can do that at lunch if you want to. We're not going to sit and dwell on what, the whole, what he wore, all those things. We're just going to say this. There was a curtain that was in between them, and the curtain had three colors. Blue, purple, scarlet. Those three colors. Red, purple, blue. And they were tightly woven. So if you back up, if you back up, let's see how good you are at art theory. My kids are not allowed to answer. If you back up, what color is that? Go ahead. Anybody? Purple. Right. If you back up, it looks purple. It's a royal purple curtain. Right? That's what it looks like. But if you get close, you got these three colors. Scarlet, blue, purple. And God is incredibly creative. Let's remember how creative and brilliant God is and his illustrations of his character. So you've got this curtain that divides the, the main room from the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God are. The mercy seat is in there. Every year, once a year, priest goes in, takes blood, sprinkles it on the mercy seat, sprinkles it, says these prayers, bows before the Lord, begs for salvation for the people, and then walks out. That's that's the process of what he does. It's this incredible opportunity to stand face to face with God. It's also terrifying. But in between everyone else and this thing, and this Ark of the Covenant, and this the presence of God, is this curtain. Three colors. Now, just for a moment, let your mind think about the beauty of those three colors. Scarlet, the blood of the lamb for your sins. Water, uh, uh, blue, water of the word that washes you clean. Purple, the royalty of God. That's one way to look at it. You can look at it this way too. The, the scarlet, the priest of God standing before God, making atonement on behalf of the people. The Blue being the prophet, the very word prophet in Hebrew means to bubble over like water overflowing, bubble forth. Navi means to bubble forth. So you've got blue, the, the prophet overflowing, and then you've got the, the purple, the king. Prophet, priest, and king all filled in Jesus Christ who stands between us and God. Right. And then you've, got, then you've got more than that. You've also got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Holy Spirit obviously being the blue, the water that you can't grab or hold, right? The blue. And then red, Jesus, the sun, the blood. And then blue, the righteous king, the father, God, the creator, the Lord of all lords, the Elohim, the, the God of all glory, El Elyon, the, the one who stands above all. And, and then sewn on top of that, sewn on top of that are these golden cherubs. These golden cherubs, which ought to immediately draw your mind back to Genesis chapter 3 and 4, when God puts in the way to guard the way to the tree of life. It, you have to say it that way because that's the way the Hebrew says it to guard the way to the tree of life. This cherub 
standing there with a sword that points every direction, and he is standing in the way, guarding the way to the tree of life in Genesis because man has fallen and sinned against God. And so from the beginning, this has been blocking your communion with God, and yet at the same time has showed us that the way to have communion with God is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone exemplified in prophet, priest, king, in blood, water, royalty. Exemplified in this, this beautiful picture of the, of the curtain standing between us and God. Jesus stands between us and God. And all from the beginning of time, the way to know the Lord has always been through Jesus. It has always been that way. And the cherub has always guarded the way to the tree of life. It is always, this isn't plan B. It isn't something that changed. This has been from the beginning. And God exemplifies it in this curtain. Think back to Genesis chapter 1. When God creates the heaven and earth, he creates the sun to rule the day. And what does he say? The lesser lights to rule the night, right? When Jesus is with his disciples and he says, he says, uh, night is coming when I will not be with you. There's an automatic throwback to Genesis chapter 1. He created the lesser lights to rule the night. And then he calls you the light of the world. He calls, he calls you lesser lights. Little Christians. Little Christs. He calls you to live as he does. And then what's he say about it? Behold, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth. I will send a helper to you who will make his dwelling place within you. I will be with you always. You have the light of life in you. And though it is night, we don't walk in the darkness. We walk in the light. We are given the light of life. You are lesser lights. The light has failed, but Christ has not. And the curtain that once stood in the way that everybody thought had to be answered by law has been torn and two, the covenant has been fulfilled in Christ's death here. When Abraham made a covenant with God and he divides the animals in two, do you remember who walks through? It's not Abraham. If you're not familiar with what a covenant is, a covenant is you, you take an animal, cut it in half, you set it on each side, then you take the hand of the person you're making the covenant with and you walk through. And what you're saying there in that moment is if, any, if either of us break this covenant, this is going to happen to us. That's what you're saying. Remember the story of Abraham. Abraham gets given the promise that the seed of Abraham will bless the nations, bringing salvation to, to nations of people, that the stars of the sky would be like his offspring, that there would be this incredible salvation coming and Abraham is put to sleep and then the, what, goes through, what goes through the covenant? It's not Abraham. Abraham doesn't go through. God does. Burning torch, pot smoking. A pot smoking. Go through. I don't know how that looks. I don't know if that's like a cartoon like floating. I don't know, but this is, just get the picture that God 
went through the covenant and said, if, if either of us break this covenant, Abraham, if your people or if I break this covenant, may this happen to us. And then God never breaks the covenant and the people of God break the covenant over and over and over and over again. And then here in this passage, the curtain, Jesus Christ, who stood between us and God as mediator, is torn in two. And all of a sudden, we have access to the Holy of Holies because he fulfills his promises. He fills his covenant. You can talk directly to God. What? I have never had an aunt try to make an appointment with me. Right? I've never had an aunt try to make an appointment with me. They just build mounds in my yard and I kill them. Yet, God, the sovereign creator of the universe, made a way for you to meet with him personally at your whim. At your whim, you can, you can go to him at any time. I can talk to, I talked to him this morning while I was having breakfast. He let me sleep a little longer. He even woke me up when I was supposed to get up so that he could show me he was going to let me sleep a little longer this morning, which I thought was hysterical. This is the way God works. You now have access to God himself because Jesus Christ has torn into fulfilling the covenant of God, fulfilling the covenant that he made with his people and fulfilling the promise that he, the offspring, would bless the nations for his name and his glory. How wonderful is that? Now we've only gone through two verses. Verse 46. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Go back to Psalm 31, verse 5, for a minute. Psalm 31, verse 5. This is a psalm that the majority of Jews had memorized. They sang it as a kid. It was like a VBS song. This particular psalm. And in this verse, Into your hands I commit my spirit. I want you to imagine... Everybody around the cross, good Jewish boys and girls who went to Jewish VBS. Everybody knows what VBS is? I'm doing, this is a big cultural reference. If you're not from the South, you don't know what this is. But VBS, everybody here should know, right? VBS is that thing that you send your kids to, summer camp for Christians, uh, for a week. And you take them every morning or every evening, depending on what kind of church you're going to and what kind of activities they have. And they teach them Bible songs and they teach them Bible stories. And there's always three big Bible stories they teach that are included every time. Adam and Eve with the serpent, right? That one's always in there. Uh, Usually Jonah or Noah, right? Something to do with water, one or the other. Um, They don't do both, but they'll do one or the other. And then they'll do something from the Gospels. And so those three stories will be taught at some point. Now, uh, you learn these songs when you're there. Uh, the big one when I was growing up was the fruit of the spirit is not a coconut. Fruit of the spirit is not a coconut. If you want to be a coconut, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the spirit because the fruits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, genuine self-control. Right? Like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, genuine self-control. Yeah. And then you did the fruit of the Spirit is not a banana, the fruit of the Spirit is not a kiwi. You had all kinds of interesting fruits. But you memorized Galatians 
chapter 5, right? Because that was what you were doing. This is the same thing. They had this kind of song. So I want you to, to listen to the first part. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Everybody around the cross would have immediately thought the next response line. This is a call and response psalm. Everybody would have heard the next line. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Jesus, with his last breath, is proclaiming the gospel that you are saved because of this. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O faithful God. Redeemed me, O faithful God. Would have been an immediate call and response in their brain. The lights go out, the earth shakes, the curtains torn in two. All pictures of Jesus Christ's salvation. And then, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, faithful God. Everybody suddenly goes, oh, oh my, this is salvation right here. This is it. This is life standing before us. We have only to repent and trust in this, to trust in this king of glory. Verse 47 Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Now, this doesn't mean that he turned and was like, yay! That's not what praise means here. Praise means that he turned and acknowledged God. In Matthew's gospel, again, we're told that his response to this is, surely this man was the son of God. That's his response. Surely this man was the son of God. Praise is by definition that which acknowledges greater. So praise is that which acknowledges greater. So when you say, I am praising God, you are acknowledging him as greater. When the centurion looks at this man and says, I praise God because of what's going on with this guy, and in Matthew's gospel says, surely this was the Son of God, then he is praising, exalting God as greater. If this centurion suddenly saw a Gentile who was commissioned for the purpose of Roman justice being poured out on these Jews, turns and goes, that's great. That's what greatness is. We cheapen praise in our culture when we make it clapping and yay and feel good. We cheapen worship and praise when we make it that. It's so much more. It's why when we sing here at this church, we try to pick songs that have meat that is something for you to grab and take home. It's why we print the bulletins. We've got a screen. It's not a great one, but we've got one. You don't have to have the words in a bulletin. We do that so you'll take them home and read them. It's part of the reason that I got so excited when somebody suggested that we put scripture verses for every song that we sing so you'd see where they come from. And that's in the top of your bulletin right underneath. 
the title. You can take them home and rejoice in these things and delight in these things. Praise, however, is not something that is just entertaining. Praise is more. Praise is identifying something as greater. And here the centurion sees Jesus dying on the cross and goes, great, that's great. He's the greatest. He's God. And so likewise, we ought to recognize that praise, that when we give it to God, is something greater than we could possibly hold to. Verse 48, and the, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Note, two crowds of people. The ones who were part of the mob that are now recognize, oh no, this was not good. And then the acquaintances who don't really know what to do, standing at a distance. And the women who came with him. Who's absent? Who's absent? The disciples. They're absent. The Pharisees. They're absent. You can take that to mean something here. That in the war on sin, Jesus is the only hero. And we, sin, sinners, are the only adversary. The characters that we could slough those, those roles off onto, that we could excuse ourselves with, are gone. All you have now are women and acquaintances who in the Gospel of Luke are kind of lower class. And then you've got this centurion and then you've got the ones beating their chests. Right? Everyone recognizes that this is sad and depressing. And the women don't know what to do, and the acquaintances don't know what to do, and they're standing at a distance. Feel that for a minute, because we feel that often. As Christians in a world that is filled with sin, when things look bleak politically, personally and even just circumstantially every day when we deal with these things don't you feel this sometimes isn't this how you feel don't you feel like i don't know what to do and i see him at a distance i see jesus is all the way over there but i don't know what to do and so i stand at a distance and i go i don't should i say something should i do this should i i should i just cook dinner and ignore the stuff around me. Should I, you know, should I take care of that person down the street who's awful? Should I, should I call that guy that's behaving wickedly? Like what, what do I do? Like I don't, I don't know what to. Do. I'm standing at a distance and I'm going, Jesus, I need, I need you to figure this out. But it feels like you're just dead at this point. I mean, this is a legitimate feeling that people have. Yet. The truth of this story has already been told. Jesus, the Son of God, is right there. And he has made a way for you to commune with God the Father, to have life everlasting, to call to him and find the answer. 
We can stand at a distance or we can beat our breasts and go, this world is falling apart or we can be the lesser lights. We can be the lesser lights who work in the darkness, who reach out to neighbors, who live above the storm, not free from it, not away from it. Remember what the psalmist says. You pick me up from the miry pit. You place me on a rock. It doesn't say you pick me up from the miry pit and remove me from all difficult circumstances and take me out of the storm. It says I give you a firm foundation to stand on. That's what it says. The storms come and blow on the house and your house remains because it's built on the rock and not on sand. That's Christianity. Doesn't mean the storms don't come. Doesn't mean hurricanes don't hit. It means that you have a firm foundation to stand on in the midst of trial and difficulty. And like Job, we can say with all certainty that we have seen God and he has blessed us. Even though he slay me, still I will praise him. Right? This is the beauty of Christ here. When we stand at a distance, he is still there with us, for us. Indeed, we see next week that he comes resurrecting. Verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Note the past tense. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This is a man who had hope that Jesus would perhaps usher in the kingdom of God. And here he comes to honor this man, this rabbi, to wrap him, to take him, to bury him in a tomb. This is the only seeker person ever recorded in scripture that I would argue. Is it? He's looking for the kingdom of God. He's a good and righteous man who is trying his best to follow the precepts of God. And then he comes here and you have this wonderful picture of him burying Jesus because of love. That's the only thing that explains this. There's no other reason to do this. He cares about this rabbi, wants to honor him. So he, he comes in this story and he takes him and he wraps him in a linen clay. He asked Pilate for the body of Jesus boldly. And then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone. We'll talk about that a little bit next week as well. Where there where no one had ever been laid. And it was the Sabbath day of preparation, or the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come from Galilee, those are the same women who were in verse 49. The women who came from Galilee saw that the saw the tomb and how the body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandments, so they obey the law of God, and then they're ready to go back and complete their mourning the next day, which we will look at next week. But here, the thing that we can grab hold of with this story of Joseph, it's an odd story to throw in there, by the way. This is a, a, an odd kind of juxtaposition, right? I know that Luke wants to tell us Jesus was really buried and really 
put into a tomb. That's what he's trying to tell you. He's trying to tell you, no, Jesus really did die. He really was buried. He really was put into a tomb. He's successfully telling you that. He's not just trying. He's telling you exactly what happened. Jesus did die. There's no swooning. He didn't get unconscious. He didn't fall halfway and then wake up. He is dead, 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 dead. And he gets put into the tomb, into a tomb, cut out of stone. Rocks are in the way. He is gone. And the women follow and see him. There's some things we can take heart at here. When it seems darkest, he's about to do something. So in this darkest moment of all of history, when it feels like nothing's gone right, you can rest in the truth that everything has just gone right. Everything has just gone right. All of this was prophesied. Even this burial was prophesied. They make, his tomb, they make his grave with a rich man's in his death. Though he was not of means and not wealthy and not of high estate, they make his tomb with the rich man in his death. This is prophesied in Scripture. This very moment is God's work, God's handiwork being played out. In the darkest moment in these women's life, the low and cast out, the ones who don't have anything, they, these women who followed from a distance, not even, not even, like you notice the emphasis, they're from Galilee. They're not even Jerusalem women. They're even, they're not even in their hometown. Like there's no comfort for them. And they follow at a distance. And even at a distance, they can see where he was laid. They go and they rest for a day according to Sabbath rest. And they're about to experience eternal Sabbath. They take the Sabbath day off before they prepare to mourn. Not realizing that eternal Sabbath is about to walk out of the tomb. And they come back. And Sabbath has been restored in its original state. And all of a sudden they can walk with God forever. Joseph of Arimathea pleads for, for his body. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if there was some legal documentation. Probably He probably needed, I mean, they were Roman. He probably needed some sort of notary and a bribe or two. And, and he needed to be able to like sneak in with some other people to get to Pilate. And there were probably some weird things he had to do that were just you know, governmental, sign this paper, fill this form out, take these guards with you while you do it, you know, all these various things. It's not exactly a casual society, Roman governance. You know, they kept records of everything. Wouldn't surprise me if this took, took Joseph into the night to do. And he had to work real, real long to do it. And so he takes Jesus and buries him. Note how he does it. Wraps him in linen, clean linen cloth. He does the Jewish burial. Wraps him in clean linen cloth. He, you know, the napkin would be on his face. There would be the napkin, the towel. The nice, fancy towel would be on his face, covering him. The linen would be wrapped around him. He'd be held in place. He'd be kind of enshrouded, like a mummy almost. Um, and then he'd be put in the tomb very carefully and laid on a elevated surface within the tomb. That's a rich man's grave. 
and then they they'd have difficulty getting them in. These aren't big rooms; they're small, like cavern cave type things, and they'd have they'd have difficulty getting them in. And then they'd get out, and then they'd roll the tomb in front of him, and all would seem lost. But what we see here is Joseph of Arimathea and these women have just seen where Sabbath is about to come from. The peace of God with man comes in the death of Jesus Christ. In the death of Jesus Christ, he's Messiah still. And he brings peace to us. But he doesn't stop there. And it would be remiss of us not to ponder the life he brings as well. He brings forgiveness from sin and peace in his death. And then he brings us resurrected new life in resurrection. You have died with Christ. You are also raised to walk a new life with him. Oh, what glorious joy it is to know him and to follow him with this truth. Lord, we, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for salvation that you have redeemed and rescued us. And we can say for certain that we have known and rejoiced in knowing you. We love you and we trust you in all things. Amen.